from 1982 when this book was uh, published um, through the present, we are indebted to the kind of rigorous comparative and historical uh, examination of the study of religion that has been called for by Jonathan Z. Smith. Jonathan, you've visited here many times. Uh, we have learned from you in many different contexts. Uh, you were a teacher here in the Department of Religious Studies in the mid-1960s. Um, it is once again a great pleasure to welcome you for the second annual Ninian Smart Memorial Lecture. Will you join me now in welcoming Jonathan Smith, who will speak on the topic of God bless this honorable court, religion and civic discourse. Jonathan Z. Smith. Well, thank you, Richard. Hello, Labushka. I'm honored by your invitation to give this lecture for this particular occasion. One can, I think, with full appropriateness apply to Ninian Smart, an old and pregnant religious term. He was, as few others, a presence in our field, a figure of such thought and personality, and yes, corporeality, that he required engagement. As he once wrote, playing with the old patristic formula, he thought not understanding in order to believe, rather I understand in order to discuss. Discussion, dialogue, argument, gossip, whatever you term it, became immediately significant and effervescently joyous with Ninian's presence. It is this that makes his absence all the more keenly felt. Today I wish to celebrate one aspect of Ninian's complex vocation, his efforts in both Great Britain and the United States with religion in the public domain, and most especially in public education. Although the situation in Lancaster and Santa Barbara positions this issue differently, these two locales bear important structural similarities, forged in part by Ninian's co-presence, but shaped earlier in the debates in the mid to late 60s concerning religion in the public domain. For myself then, as a young teacher, committed to the enterprise of religious studies in this new environment, Bob Michelson's 1963 to 65 publications on religion in state universities, and Ninian Smart's 1968, Secular Education and the Study of Religion, were equally canonical. As is appropriate to the economy and ecology of this lecture here in this location, I want to explore aspects of religion in civic discourse in terms of those peculiarly American institutions of constitution and court. But I want to assure our British colleagues for whom the particularities are quite different 
that I intend the American context only as an EG. The issue before us is not the legal standing of religion, but rather the representation and interpretation of religion in public speech. My friend and sometimes colleague, Professor William Scott Green at the University of Rochester, has established with precision the contours of my presentation today when he observed on one occasion that the study of religion is the only humanistic field in the American Academy whose subject matter is explicitly governed by the United States Constitution. On another occasion, articulating one aspect of the common sense sort of distinction between religion and the study of religion, Green noted with no small bitterness that in preparation for Easter, news reporters always contact the local bishop to inquire about the significance of the holiday while they call the local college's Department of Religion to find out why there are Easter bunnies and Easter eggs. The first observation suggests the gravity of the enterprise. The second, its simultaneous marginalization. Whatever religion is, its definition is thought to lie with others, with courts and practitioners, and not with the academic field charged with its study. This odd displacement is only encouraged when scholars of religion at times assume the stance that their subject matter is by nature indefinable. But this latter, which has preoccupied me elsewhere, is not the issue of this lecture. Rather, I wish to look at the consequence of some legal interpretations of religion and religious phenomena from the point of view of a student of religion. Now let me begin with items some of us here in the States will have encountered on the recently mailed instructions for filing Internal Revenue Schedule SE, the form used to figure the Social Security tax if one is self-employed. Nearly three-quarters of the instruction page is taken up with matters organized under headings such as employees of churches and church organizations, ministers and members of religious orders, and members of certain religious sects. The second of these topics features a new provision in the 2000 tax law. Quote, if you are a minister, a member of a religious order not under a vow of poverty, or a Christian science practitioner who previously elected exemption from Social Security coverage and the self-employment tax, you may now revoke that exemption. The third section begins to quote again, if you have conscientious objections to Social Security insurance, because of your membership in and belief in the teachings of a religious sect recognized as being in existence at all times since December 31st, 1950, 
and which has provided a reasonable level of living for its dependent members, you are exempt from self-employment tax if you have received Internal Revenue Service approval by filing Form 4029. The Internal Revenue Service is both de facto and de jure America's primary definer and classifier of religion. In this, it reproduces the imperial Roman government's efforts at distinguishing licit and illicit religions as a subtype of a wider legal concern for distinctions between licit and illicit associations. Now, how does the Internal Revenue Service fulfill these defining and classifying functions? We see this most clearly in the regulations governing the tax-exempt status of religious organizations in Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code. A subset of provisions for the larger tax-exempt category of nonprofit organizations. The main criterion is that a religious organization, quote, must be organized and operated exclusively for religious purposes, with exclusivity and purpose specified in the same general terms that apply to all other tax-exempt organizations, no individual financial benefit, no substantial political lobbying or participation in political campaigns. But there's one important difference. All other sorts of tax-exempt groups file annually both a statement of activities and what is euphemistically termed an informational tax return. However, quote, churches, their integrated activities and conventions or associations of churches and organizations claiming to be churches do not have to submit these documents. In a Treasury Regulation 1511-2A322, church for the purpose of this statute is defined, and I quote with care. The term church includes a religious order or religious organization if such an order or organization is A, an internal part of a church, and B, engaged in carrying out the functions of a church. The regulation continues but scarcely clarifies. A religious order or organization shall be considered to be carrying out the functions of a church if its duties include the ministration of sacerdotal functions and the conduct of religious worship. What constitutes the conduct of religious worship or the ministration of sacerdotal functions depends on the tenets and practices of a particular religious body constituting a church. In this passage, as elsewhere in government documents, legal and statutory discourse appears to stammer in a setting that at least putatively recognizes religious pluralism and remains anti-establishmentarian. 
At first glance, what I have read appears to be a set of tautologies masked as definitions in violation of that very first rule of lexicography, a word may not be defined in terms of itself. Surely it is singularly uninformative to assert with the Internal Revenue Service that a religious organization must be organized for religious purposes, or that a church must be part of a church, or engaged in carrying out the functions of a church. The circularity of these definitions suggests at the practical level that the Internal Revenue Service is reluctant in most cases to adjudicate the claim of religious organizations to be religious, except those it judges to be extraordinarily or patently fraudulent. For example, mail order ministries, such as the Universal Life Church, founded in 1962. Now, for the student of religion, something more fundamental is here at work a notion of self-evidence drawn from lay understandings of varied forms of Christianities to serve as what cognitive scientists term a prototype. A prototype functions in classification by providing an image of a commonplace example which then serves as an ideal or typical exemplar of a category with decisions as to whether another object is a member of the same category being based on matching it against features of the prototype. For example, employing a robin as a prototype for bird. While matters are no longer quite so blunt as Justice Gilbert writing for the Georgia Supreme Court in 1922 in Wilkerson v. Rome, Christianity is the only religion known to American law, or Thomas McIntyre Cooley's observation in his influential fourth edition of the Handbook of Constitutional Law, the Christian religion is, of course, recognized by the government. The unproblematized use in the tax law I've read you of terms such as church, sect, religious organization, religious orders, ministers, sacerdotal, and so forth, suggests that the features of religious groups are routinely being matched against some Christian prototype, some Christian robin, if you please. Matters now are more complex at the level of the United States Supreme Court, on which I will focus for the remainder of this presentation not on the court as the ultimate authority on the United States Constitution, most especially the First Amendment's guarantees with respect to religion, but rather the Supreme Court as the legally authorized public interpreter of religion. For this reason, I shall draw in what follows on the opening narrative statements as to the facts of the case in the majority's decision rather than on the legal reasonings of the decision itself. For the Supreme Court, classification by prototype continues to be common. Let me give as an example a 1993 case of the Church of Lukumi Babalu Ie Incorporated 
and Ernesto Pichado v. the city of Hialeah, 508 U.S. 520. This is a case that never should have had to come before the court, but rather should have been settled in the lower courts unanimously in the petitioner's favor. The issue was one of free exercise, a matter less frequently litigated than establishment cases before the court. Here, a Cuban-American Santeria church leased property and planned to construct a religious complex in which, among other things, animal sacrifice would be performed. The Hialeah City Council subsequently, post facto, issued a set of resolutions prohibiting animal sacrifice in Hialeah or the possession of animals intended for ritual killing. The Supreme Court, as it well might have, unanimously declared these resolutions to be in violation of the Constitution's free exercise clause. Now, there are many interesting features specific to this decision which would well repay discussion, including the multiple concurrent opinions and the court's clear consciousness of the contemporary 1993 congressional debates concerning the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which sought to set aside the implications of an earlier 1990 Supreme Court free exercise decision. The court, in fact, subsequently invalidated that act in 1997. From a different perspective, the student of religion might note, as the courts need not, that the court's deliberative processes evidence little interest in the divisive socio-political environment which had resulted in the City Council's actions. In particular, the racial and economic class distinctions between two Cuban immigrant groups. The upper and middle class Hispanic Catholic opponents of Santeria and the working class black Santerians. A division which made all the more remarkable the Santerians' opponents' odd argument to the courts that Santeria ought to be dismissed as a religion because it was illegal in Castro's Cuba. Perhaps the only occasion at which this group of Catholic Cuban Americans have cited Castro's perspicuity in religious questions. Indeed, there is absolutely no sign of the justices' awareness of the massive influence of Santeria in Cuba, one of the reasons, after all, for the Pope's visit in the late 90s to the island, nor of its historical and structural relations to other Afro-Caribbean religions. However, for the purposes of today's presentation, I want to focus only on the court's familiarizing attempts to place Santeria in relation to the Christian prototype and to place animal sacrifice with respect to that prototype of religion on the basis of information the court cites from both the Florida District Court records of the case and standard reference works, including most prominently 
1987 Encyclopedia of Religion, edited by Mircea Iliadi. I presume the set of red-bound volumes reminds them of their own legal libraries. So let me quote, with only occasional abridgment, the first three framing paragraphs of Mr. Justice Kennedy's majority opinion. I'll interrupt him and comment on each in turn. This case involves practices of the Santeria religion, which originated in the 19th century. When hundreds and thousands of members of the Yoruba people were brought as slaves from Western Africa to Cuba, their traditional African religion absorbed significant elements of Roman Catholicism. The resulting syncretism, or fusion, is Santeria, the way of the saints. The Cuban Yoruba expressed their devotion to spirits called Orishas through the iconography of Catholic saints. Catholic symbols are often present at Santerian rites, and Santerian devotees attend the Catholic sacraments. I'll pause the quotation. Kennedy's first domesticating paragraph is, you will note, preeminently genealogical. While measured on the time scale of familiar Western religions, Santeria is relatively new. Justice Kennedy portrays it as being a combination of two more archaic elements, traditional African religion and Roman Catholicism. While its devotion to spirits named Orisha in Yoruba clearly mark it as African, Indeed, Justice Kennedy employs the weird locution, the Cuban Yoruba, as if the tribal identification has remained intact. Catholic elements, you noted in Justice Kennedy's domesticating representation, clearly prevail. As this paragraph is largely composed of paraphrase and unmarked direct quotation from Joseph Murphy's article in the Iliadi Encyclopedia, it is significant that the last sentence by Kennedy, quote, Catholic symbols are often present at Santerian rites, and Santerian devotees attend Catholic sacraments, carries precisely the reverse implication in Murphy's article. Despite, underline, despite the frequent presence of Catholic symbols in Santerian rites, and the attendance of Santeros at Catholic sacraments, Santeria is essentially an African way of worship drawn into symbiotic relationship with Catholicism. Now the second paragraph faces up to the difficulty caused by Kennedy's familiarizing interpretation. If Santeria is but an ethnically colored Catholicism, no different in principle than Kennedy's Irish Catholicism. What about animal sacrifice? Quote, the Santeria faith teaches that every individual has a destiny from God, a destiny fulfilled with the aid and energy of the Orishas. The basis of Santerian religion is the nurture of a personal relation with the Orishas and one of the principal forms of devotion is an animal sacrifice. 
Now let me interrupt Kennedy again at this point to note further elements of domestication. He's now shifted to a largely Protestant nomenclature, thoroughly assimilated in American religious discourse, now speaking of the Santeria faith along with the Santerian religion, and emphasizes that the presupposition of this faith is that every individual has a destiny from God. Again, reverting to American Protestant language, Kennedy asserts that the basis of the Santerian religion is the nurture of a personal relation with the Orishas, without a hint that this evangelical-sounding personal relation is one of spirit possession. Kennedy's sources strategically not quoted by him at this point in his decision state that the relation culminates in a lengthy initiation in which the Orisha is enthroned in the head of the devotee and is sealed as a permanent part of the devotee's personality. Furthermore, again deliberately unnoted by Kennedy, this personal relation with the Orishas is regularly affected through divinatory procedures, spirit mediumship and possession, as well as by sacrifice understood in native practice as an intimate divine human sharing of food. Note that Kennedy preferred here a blander understanding of sacrifice, interpreting it as a mode of worship, a form of personal devotion. Despite this attempted familiarization, animal sacrifice remains stubbornly alien and thus requires further efforts at placement. So I quote, the sacrifice of animals as part of religious rituals has ancient roots. Animal sacrifice is mentioned throughout the Old Testament and it played an important role in the practice of Judaism before the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. In modern Islam, there is an annual sacrifice commemorating Abraham's sacrifice of a ram in the stead of his son. Note here that despite Justice Kennedy's citation at this point of the article on sacrifice by Henniger in the Iliadi Encyclopedia, his illustrations of sacrifice contain no allusion to its role in traditional religions, including those of Africa. Ancient roots, antiquity, is normatively represented in his account by the religion of Israel as described in the Old Testament. As Kennedy continues his history, he clearly has in mind some version of the triple formulation of the so-called Abrahamic tradition, encapsulated in President Bush's reiterated phrase, churches, synagogues, or mosques, the order is not without significance, a formation as problematic as its tawdry predecessor invented in 1939 in connection with the New York City World's Fair, the Judeo-Christian tradition, or as some of my students more militantly write it, the Judo-Christian tradition. The Abrahamic tradition maps Christianity as the center, Judaism as the near neighbor, and Islam the far. 
In Kennedy's account, animal sacrifice is on the map of recognizable religious practice because Jews once practiced it, and Muslims still do, but only once a year. <laughs> These two traditions are linked as Kennedy understands the Islamic practice to commemorate an event in Old Testament biblical tradition. He surely does not note that Abraham's son was spared by the substitution of a ram is most frequently held to be Ishmael, not Isaac. Kennedy need not speak the obvious exception. Christianity, at least as he thinks of it, did not and does not perform animal sacrifice. Parenthetically, Kennedy does not record the ambivalence in Islam to sacrifice. For the student of religion, it's notable that metaphorical sacrificial language dominates most Christianities which lack any actual rituals of sacrifice, while it's a distinctively muted theme in both Judaism's and Islam's which have real histories of sacrifice. Now, almost in passing, Kennedy announces in the first sentence of his third framing paragraph the logic of Santorian sacrifice, quote, the Orishas are powerful but not immortal. They depend for survival on the sacrifice. That is to say, as in Numbers 28 in the Hebrew Bible, sacrifice provides superhuman beings with their necessary food. But this rationale apparently is estranging to Kennedy as it is correct, is quickly overcome by a flood of largely irrelevant information which I will not bore you with in the rest of the paragraph, which enumerates in considerable detail, as if the Supreme Court was about to do one, the occasions for sacrifice, the sorts of animals commonly sacrificed, the procedures for killing the animal in great and graphic detail, various recipes for cooking the animal, and the etiquette of eating it. Now what Mr. Justice Kennedy has undertaken in this initial statement of fact, or more properly of data, that is to say facts accepted by the court for purposes of the argument, is an essay in familiarization, largely enabled by the deployment of a Christian prototype. That which initially appeared strange, Santorian animal sacrifice, has here been reduced to an instance of the known. In favor of Kennedy's procedure, the heavy social and political costs of leaving the practice in the realm of the exotic is indicated by the comments of the Hialeian officials cited in the body of the court's opinion, and I quote, Councilman Mahides indicated that he was totally against the sacrificing of animals and distinguished the Jewish practice of kosher slaughter because it had a real purpose. The Bible says we're allowed to sacrifice an animal for consumption, he continued, but for any other purpose, I don't believe the Bible allows that. The chaplain of the Hialeah Police Department told the city council that Santeria was a sin, foolishness, and the worship of demons. 
He advised the city council, quote, we need to be helping people and sharing with them the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. He concluded, I would exhort you not to permit this church to exist. Now, Kennedy's redescription of the Santerian tradition is an effort at one and the same time, both similar and different to that familiarizing project undertaken by the study of religion as it works through that necessary tension between the near and the far. The relations between the near and the far, the familiar and the exotic, have been the preoccupation of Western students of religion ever since the Ionian ethnographers. Although the presuppositions and techniques have altered over time, the fundamental devices have remained the same. Comparison, translation, and redescription. These projects work with difference, relaxing it, but never overcoming it. Because nothing is ever quite the same as another, these efforts require always judgments and criticisms. Translation and difference and criticism each in their own way challenged the confidence attendant on the deployment of some particular religion as a prototype for religion, whether practiced by the Internal Revenue Service, the United States Supreme Court, we as scholars of religion, the daily press, or ourselves as citizens. What is more, the paragraph cited from Justice Kennedy use terms such as religion, syncretism, sacrifice, as if they were self-evident. In his decision, they are innocent of either controversy or entailments. They have no history. There is no hint of the problematics of redescription, of translation, here at the level now of a second-order language. I contrast this to the strongest example of these processes in the study of religion that I know, Durkheim's translation and elemental forms of the language appropriate to religion into the language appropriate to society. From the precising definitions on the very first page to the redescription of aboriginal rituals in the final part, Durkheim has always taken care now, for the purpose of this lecture, this is not the aspect of Durkheim I need to stress. Rather, I want to use in a minute his work to illustrate the contrary impulse to familiarization, one that is equally imperative in the human sciences in general and in the study of religion in particular, namely that of defamiliarization. This is a process of making the familiar seem strange in order to enhance our understanding of it. This is then equally a matter of redescription. For it is the aforementioned requirements of difference and criticism, as well as the processes of defamiliarization, that prevent and forbid the study of religion from being an exercise in the transmission of a religious tradition.
To illustrate defamiliarization, let me introduce a second and better known Supreme Court case, Lynch v. Donnelly, 465 U.S. 668, decided in 1984. The case here concerns a Christmas nativity display erected by the city of Pawtucket, Rhode Island at their downtown shopping center. By a narrow margin, five to four, the court ruled in favor of the city that the exhibit was not primarily religious, in that one, it contained secular as well as religious symbols. For example, the infant Jesus, along with the court's favorite example, a talking wishing well. And two, that it was erected for a secular and commercial purpose. The first criterion was thought crucial as subsequent decisions made plain. Five years later, in 1989, the court found the erection of a creche in a county's courthouse square, accompanied by a banner proclaiming glory to God in the highest to be an illicit entanglement of religion and state, but found permissible a second display on civil, civic property merely one block away, containing a Christmas tree, a menorah, and a banner reading, quote, during this holiday season, our city salutes liberty. Let these festive lights remind us that we are keepers of the flame of liberty and our legacy of freedom. The second display was judged proper in that, unlike the first, it contained a mixture of sacred and secular objects, the Christmas tree and the menorah on the one hand, and the patriotic banner on the other, and was erected at least in part for the thoroughly secular purpose in the court's understanding of fostering patriotism. I leave aside the additional issue which also interested the court of the permissibility and therefore the canceling out of religion of displaying together symbols from two different religions. Now here I want to quote without intervening, comment two extracts from the majority opinion in Lynch v. Donnelly, written by Mr. Chief Justice Berger. The first I would take as an ethnographic description, and the second as a statement by a native informant. The first descriptive statement is based on a summary by Judge Patine when the case was decided previously by the United States District Court, and I quote, each year in cooperation with the Downtown Retail Merchants Association, the city of Pawtucket, Rhode Island erects a Christmas display as part of its observance of the Christmas holiday season. The display is situated in a park owned by a nonprofit organization and located in the heart of the shopping district. The display comprises many figures and decorations traditionally associated with Christmas, including, among other things, a Santa Claus house, reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh, candy-striped poles, a Christmas tree, carolers, cut-out figures of clowns, an elephant, a teddy bear, a talking wishing well, hundreds of colored lights, a large banner that reads Season's Greetings, 
and a crash, a nativity scene. The crash has been on display for 40 or more years. It consists of traditional figures, including the infant Jesus, Mary and Joseph, angels, shepherds, kings, and animals, all ranging in height from five inches to five feet. The creche is positioned in a central and highly visible location, an almost life-sized tableau marked off by a white picket fence. And so to hold that photograph in your mind. The second extract forms part of the city's argument for the propriety of the exhibit, that it was not unconstitutional mingling of state and church on the grounds that it was never erected for religious purposes. As I've indicated, the second statement may be taken as if it was won by a native informant. It was offered by one David Freeman, professor of philosophy at the University of Rhode Island, who had appeared as an expert witness for the city in the U.S. District Court hearing of the case. And I quote, the display engenders a friendly community spirit of goodwill in keeping with the season. The display brings into the central city shoppers and serves commercial interests and benefits merchants and their employees. It promotes pre-Christmas retail sales and helps engender goodwill and neighborliness commonly associated with the Christmas season. It invites people to participate in the Christmas spirit, brotherhood, peace, and to let loose with their money. <laughs> now I propose we undertake a thought experiment in the service of defamiliarization, in which we replace one of the members of the Supreme Court, my choice would be Mr. Justice Scalia, with Emil Durkheim. <laughs> We will instruct him, since he's French, to ignore the constitutional question of government and religion, inasmuch as Durkheim's translation language of church and society is not equivalent to that peculiarly American connotations attached to church and state. I'd ask him only to argue the question whether from the point of view of his redescriptions, and solely on the basis of the two extracts I've just quoted you, the totality of the Pawtucket display would for him constitute a religion. Now, a number of Durkheimian interpretative possibilities present themselves. I shall, in fact, offer 10, no one of which is necessarily correct. Interpretation, whether in the human sciences or in a court of law, is a matter of persuasion, not of truth. Persuasion depends on the power of the relations argued between the stipulated data, in this case my two reports, and the rhetorical interpretative frame placed on them in the present experiment, that of Durkheim. So let's begin by granting for the purposes of argument the finding of fact by the court that the display consists of the co-presence of sacred and secular items. In the court's reasoning, religion would be present only if the exhibit consisted entirely of sacred symbols. That is to say, for the court, religion is the sacred. 
Now, Durkheim might reject both the court's premise and its conclusion while accepting its finding of fact. For, for Durkheim, as most of you will recall, religion is the oppositional relation of sacred to profane. The presence of both are required for there to be a religion. I assume in arguing this understanding that he might accept the court's characterization of the nativity scene, what the court as sacred, what the court terms the traditional figures, and note their separation from the other items in the display by that white picket fence as guarding it against profanation. But I doubt, I hope, Durkheim would not remain content with this initial move. Durkheim would surely go on to argue that conceptually one must start the interpretation of any group's religion with their beliefs rather than with their rites or symbols. Here, as Durkheim does persistently with respect to Australian data, the scholar must reject the natives' claimed pragmatic results in favor of a social scientific interpretation an interpretation from the outside, dependent on the scientists' theories and comparative knowledge. That is to say, translation is required. In the case at hand, the primitive inhabitant of Rhode Island predictably stressed the economic and pragmatic consequences of the display. And this understanding would be, from Durkheim's view, erroneously accepted as true by the court. The informant claimed that the exhibit benefits merchants and their employees. It serves commercial interests, it promotes retail sales, it causes folks to let loose with their money. Durkheim might remark that embedded in this economic discourse is a second language of sociality, specifically tied to a particular season. Rather than holding this to be a secondary effect of the economic initiatives, he would hold, I think, it to be the primary cause for the display. The scene engenders a friendly community spirit of goodwill in keeping with the season. It brings members of this society into the central city. It helps engender goodwill and neighborliness commonly associated with the Christmas season. It invites people to participate in the Christmas spirit, brotherhood, and peace. As translated by Durkheim, members of the Pawtucket Society usually live dispersed in their separate homes, following individual biological and economic pursuits. For Durkheim, you will recall, this is the fundamental social translation of the profane. By contrast, in the shopping center, these same folks come together to participate in what Durkheim would define as a moral community, his translation of the sacred. For Durkheim, the alternation between these two types of time, one individual, the other collective, is in fact the social origin of the distinction between the profane and the sacred. It is this temporal opposition that marks the two qualities and never an inherent distinction between the objects themselves. 
This collectivity needs to be periodically refreshed and renewed. Durkheim may be credited with introducing that potent prefix, re, as a centrally important element in the understanding of religion. This coming together into the central city is a ritual that re-signifies the sacred. In Durkheim's sense of the term, this coming together in the shopping center to purchase things constitutes Portucket's church. From this perspective, Durkheim might go on to argue two reinterpretations of the native informant's account. Both would reject the court's understanding that Portucket's beliefs are secular. On the one hand, Durkheim might argue that in religion the experience of the collectivity is often objectified, frequently as an impersonal force, recall mana, sometimes as a supernatural being. In the Portucket native's erroneous understanding, it is this force or being rather than the coming together that is thought to engender the powerful experienced sentiments of collective life. In Portucket, then, this objectification is variously named by the natives the season, the Christmas season, or the Christmas spirit. This is for them a sacred power in that it can be profaned. Think of the canonical example of Scrooge. Alternatively, Durkheim might argue that as these sentiments are engendered by this periodic coming together, seasonal shopping in Portucket constitutes that society's religious ritual. Taking a different tack, Durkheim might question the court's literal acceptance of the native informant's claim of commercial motivation. He might note that unlike what occurs in profane time, where money is spent in that same shopping center largely to meet the needs of sustenance, whether individual or those of a biological family, here in this season, money is being spent on gifts for the family, for a socially constructed extended family, and for others. This recognition of non-utilitarian mutual obligations between social actors who are not biologically related marks for Durkheim a moral community, which when named in religious idiom, he calls a church. Parenthetically, please note that the French l'église from Ecclesia carries a social associative sense not found in the English word church, which refers solely to divine ownership. Now, given this translated understanding of Portucket's religious beliefs, Durkheim might next turn his attention to a revaluation of the description of the display, bearing in mind again his injunction that the scientists must know how to get beneath the symbols to the social realities they represent while rejecting the interpretations offered by their believers, which are almost always, he writes, false. The ritual nature of the entire display is signaled by the notice that it's been erected each year, some items, for 40 years. It is repetitive. It is periodic. This said, Durkheim might remind the court that such objects are best understood 
as collective representations, that if religious, they will exhibit an opposition between sacred and profane, and that rather than being inherent in the object, sacrality is something that is arbitrarily super-added by society. He might recognize, as did the court, an apparent distinction between two groups of representations, basically the nativity scene and everything else. But as a first move, he might reverse the court's evaluation of the nativity scene as that which is self-evidently sacred. Within the group of everything else classified as secular by the court, Durkheim might note three central objects, the banner season's greetings, the Christmas tree, and the figure of Santa Claus. For Durkheim has already suggested the banner marks sacred time, that is collective time, and the objectification of the power of that time as the season of the power of socially renewed collectivity. Both the Christmas tree and the Santa Claus, one could argue, were collective representations of gift giving, that mutual moral obligation within the framework of a socially constructed community, which marks for Durkheim a church. The other representations may all be grouped with these three. Each of these primary representations can be profaned again, a sign of their sacrality. For familiar example, in the case of Santa Claus, despite his present iconic origins in a Coca-Cola ad campaign, think of the drunk Santa Claus in the opening scene of Miracle on 34th Street. For a more complex example, one of deliberate profanation, I refer to the French incident Christmas Eve 1951, when a figure of Santa Claus was hung by the neck until dead from the railing of the Dijon Cathedral and then burnt in the cathedral square. These acts were undertaken with the prior agreement of the clergy in front of several hundred Sunday school children as part of a protest against the Americanization of Christmas. While these various other objects established as the collective representations of the Church of Pawtucket, Durkheim can now turn to the nativity scene. Anticipating a possible objection, that white picket fence, Durkheim might here argue that the Christian scene is profane relative to the collective representations of the Church of Pawtucket and is therefore being separated from them. After all, divisiveness as opposed to collectivity is for Durkheim the hallmark of the profane. The very fact that there is a lawsuit brought by a citizen of Pawtucket concerning the nativity scene is in itself sufficient demonstration of its absolute profanity. Besides, remember that alternation of times from coming together at the shopping center, the members of the Church of Pawtucket dispersed to their individual homes and denominational houses of worship, a dispersal that likewise for Durkheim would mark them as being profane. Alternatively, 
Durkheim might again invoke the requirement to get beneath the symbols while rejecting the interpretations of believers. If so, the nativity scene might be reinterpreted as a collective representation of Port Tuckett's shopping center religion as understood by Durkheim. In Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, we are presented with an ideal, extended family, surely one not bound together by blood. Jesus and the kings can be presented as an ideal of mutual gift-giving, and so on and so on. This sort of interpretation might lead Durkheim to suggest, consistent with his understanding of Australian Aboriginal organizations, that there are, in fact, two religions in Pawtucket. The first, which is the relatively more inclusive, what he would term a tribal or a pan-tribal one, is that one objectified as the season. The second, that of a relatively more limited, what he would term clan, is represented by the Christian figures, as Durkheim might redescribe them. Both, properly translated and explained, complement each other. Both would be representations of the Church of Pawtucket. Now, I've undertaken this exercise in Durkheimian translation in order to make a simple and straightforward point. The disciplined study of, other, of any subject is, among other things, an assault on self-evidence, on matters taken for granted, nowhere surely more so than in the study of religion. The future of our increasingly diverse societies will call on all our skills at critical translation, all our abilities to occupy the contested space between the near and the far, all our, all our capacities for the dual project of making familiar what at first encounter seems strange and making strange what we have come to think of as all too familiar. All of these in the service of both an urgent public and academic agendum that difference may be negotiated but never ever overcome. Thank you.